My life is really um, complex. There are things about me that you wouldn't understand. Now playing's Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Part of the Now Playing DC Comics Movie Series. Ah, uh, gives a fella a good feeling to know they're up there doing their job. With our all-star hosts, Jacob the Dark Knight. He's a loose cannon, Commissioner. As unstable as the crooks he brings in. Stuart, the boy reviewer. A freak job. He'll crucify me. And the clown prince of podcasting. Arnie. For once, I'm stuck without a punchline. Each week at NowPlayingPodcast.com, we'll be watching another Batman film, ending with a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. Now, the real game begins. What are you protecting me from? Have you ever danced with a spoiler in the pale moonlight? This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. What do you suppose something like this does to a kid? Listener discretion is advised. Enough monkey business. We've got work to do. Here we go. Today, because you demanded it and would not let it go, <laughs> we're discussing Batman, the animated movie, Mask of the Phantasm, starring Kevin Conroy, Dana Delaney, Hart Bachner, Stacy Keach, Abe Vigoda. <laughs> I've been waiting to get to Abe. <laughs> I thought we'd do our Barney Miller retrospective first, but here we are. Mark Hamill and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., directed by Eric Radomski and Bruce Tim. I'm Arnie, the lethal protector of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob. And this madness ends now. You finally got it, people. We heard your cries. We're giving <laughs> you a basket of the phantasm. Take it out of your signatures on the message board. You can stop now. <laughs> Can I just say, I am not a bad person. <laughs> and I'm reading some of these comments. It's like, I could have cured cancer and been like, hey, everybody, cancer's over. It's like, but you didn't review Mask of the Phantasm. And it came out in theaters. And it's a Batman movie, too. And like, really? I mean, it hurt my feelings. <laughs> But you know what? To be honest, I just didn't know about this movie. You know, when we were assembling Batman, I'm like, well, yeah, the two Burton, the old 60s TV show one, the Schumachers and the Nolan. It slipped my mind. So I do want to thank the viewers, if not always politely, they did remind me that there was another bat to explore. I knew about this one. I don't know if I brought it up, but I do remember it coming out in theaters at the time and thinking, 
why are they doing that? The show's still on TV. <laughs> and it kind of led a slippery slope because it was intended to be direct-to-video. There's a ton of direct-to-video in this series of movies, some good, some not. I've seen most of them. And I guess it's kind of the bed that I made for us by going, well, it was in theaters in Norway that when <laughs> it was in the local multiplexes of our listeners, there's no escape in it, huh? No, no, we needed to do it. And I think that once we remembered or were reminded of its existence, here it is. My rationale for why we decided to do this, honestly, it was off the slate for me because if you haven't noticed, we're a little busy this year. Mm. (laughs) It's going to be lucky if we don't end in the triple digits for podcasts for 2012. And there's only 52 weeks in that year. So... It just didn't seem to fit. It seemed out of the continuity, seemed like an easy miss. But I've always prided myself on Now Playing being a show that gives back. And more than on our regular shows, I'm just going to say, we're in the middle of our donation drive. We've given back to you. We're giving you Mask of the Phantasm. There's a little donate button at nowplayingpodcast.com. We've got our bonus retrospective series as thank yous, the Alien series with all four Alien films, plus Prometheus, which is looking damn good. And if you go $25 or more, the Spielberg series of Alien films, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, War of the Worlds, Stuart's doing books and nachos. We really do try to give back, and we hope that you hear that. And then, perhaps, if you haven't donated yet, please do. And if you haven't done it before, but you've thought about it a lot, this is the one. I really am going to insist. Alien is one of my favorite franchises of all time. I think we've done a really good job. I think we're giving you really excellent shows of movies worthy of intense discussion. In general, I've probably said this before, but it's a tough sell for me, animated films, particularly theatrically. There's a stigma to it, and I I fight it again and again, and that is animation equals kitty. I know it's not true, and I definitely have had many great experiences watching animated films, but it's a tough sell. I didn't see Batman, Mask of the Phantasm ever, even though I'm pretty much a Batman fan, you know, so far so good, but I just didn't want to watch an animated version of this. And other than the Super Friends and his 70s incarnation, I really have steered away from animated Batman. Batman the Animated Series, it's not something I watched all the time. You know, I was in high school by this time. Ain't cool to watch cartoons. But I would watch it every once in a while. I enjoyed it. It's a good series. It's one of those series it has been sitting on my Netflix queue for a while. I've wanted to go back and revisit it episode by episode. But, Stuart, I never saw this in theaters either. And I think it was, you know, high school. I'm not going to go to this kid's cartoon movie. So I've never seen it. I've heard great things about it. I always heard it was worth checking out. But it wasn't until this podcast that I had a real reason to finally sit down and watch it. I mentioned my hype for Batman before Batman Returns came out. And afterwards, I knew I was disappointed in Batman Returns, but I saw this animated series. I normally wouldn't have paid any attention to a cartoon, even though I was collecting comic books and in college at this time. I didn't watch the X-Men cartoon back then. I didn't have a whole lot of time for TV in college. I was studying and partying, maybe not in that order. So when this came on, I gave it a look thinking it was going to be in the Burton universe. The music, the style, it screams Burton universe to me. But after just a couple of episodes, I realized they're kind of doing their own thing, Burton-esque, but the Joker was still alive. 
Batman wasn't quite the same Batman, and I just had little desire to get that deep into a DC hero. I'm more of a Marvel guy, but it was on for years. I'd catch episodes here and there, and... Always really liked it. Love Batman Beyond that came after it. I actually did watch every episode of that. But I didn't see this in theaters. I have seen, like I said, though, most of these direct-to-video movies that followed this one up. Because this one was intended to be initially television, from what I read, then a direct-to-video feature. And ratings for the season of Batman were so strong that first year, they're like, oh, we could make a theatrical movie out of this. And did in eight months. Yeah, it's a question I had watching this. I think two things. One, it was going to take a couple more years before they could get Batman back into the movie theaters, and Warner Brothers didn't want to let the air out of the tires. They were on a good roll here, and they didn't want to leave people with this sort of acrid taste that Batman Returns had. They wanted to keep thinking positively about Batman. So it isn't a very expensive endeavor to put this up on the big screen. I think it had a $6 million budget. So that should be relatively easy to recoup. It should also be pointed out that theatrical animation had exploded at the same time that Burton's Batman hit the screens. Little Mermaid was released that same year, and Disney had a whole renaissance with their animation studio. People were going to see cartoons big time. Beauty and the Beast was up for Best Picture. Aladdin made more money than any other movie that year, and it was... Just a phenomenon, and I think Warner Brothers Animation Studios wanted in on what Disney had going. That said, just before we even get into the movie, I have to say, I watched this on DVD, and you mentioned Little Mermaid, and I was thinking back to those, this animation does not hold up. This movie doesn't have a Blu-ray transfer, and I think the reason is, it's so grainy and so choppy that Blu-ray is going to make it look older than Katie Couric. Ouch! I, was gonna, I agree, Artie. I was watching this on DVD. I don't even think it was DVD standard. It looked like someone did a VHS transfer onto a homemade DVD player or something. I mean, scratches and weird fades. And yeah, it wasn't pretty looking. They didn't have a lot of time. They had eight months to turn this into a theatrical event. And I'm sure they felt pressured to get this out and make it seem as close to the Burton universe as they could. But yeah, I'll give you that. It feels like TV animation by and large. And I don't know that I necessarily feel like the animation style was high gloss, high budget, worthy of a theatrical release. But I do want to say I really enjoy the Art Deco look. I like the way that they split the difference between Burton and, in my mind, the old... Batman cartoon, the Super Friends era. I mean, his look, his whole costuming, it's much more classic comic book Batman, right, Jacob? I mean, this is kind of what Adam West was wearing if he were physically fit. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) the all-black outfit, that was something created by Burton. The comics had never had a fully black outfit. You know, when he first started, he had dark gray and black and some purple gloves, which soon went away. But typically it was this gray and this blue. And I've always liked that classic look. When you're talking about the printed material, it's hard to pull off all black. It's hard to get those poses with, you know, when you're drawing it, you got to have it lighter so you can show off the anatomy and, and the motion and that kind of thing. Yeah, this is a much more classical look for Batman. They are splitting those hairs. They got the Art Deco of the Burton stuff and this 1930-ish gangsters feel, but not quite set in that time. I remember from the animated TV shows that they always had the blimps and the zeppelins in the air, just kind of this weird 
vision that Burton had, but when it came to the characters, they went back to the classical comic book takes. That's kind of been my impression of this series in general, is that it was far more comic-based. I love the style, and when I diss the animation, I don't want to say I don't like the style, but it's the style right out of the television show. This feels just like the Clone Wars, made for television, shuttled to theaters very unceremoniously, unlike Transformers, where they went above and beyond to try to deliver a visual experience that you couldn't get on your television. Here, this was about 1970s Scooby-Doo for me. (laughs) This won't be the last time Scooby-Doo comes up. Yes, it is. And I think that if I had gone to a movie theater to see this and I were not accompanying children, I would be eh, a little ticked that I was being asked to pay for what I could see for free at home. But that said, I decided that, again, I love the look. It would be great still. I was going to get past the animation and focus on what I usually do here at Now Playing, the plot. All right. Well, why don't you do that? Give us a summary. Batman has been patrolling the streets of Gotham City for years, but not well enough as crime still runs rampant. But now there's a new vigilante in town, the Phantasm, a scythe-handed masked lethal protector who's offing the mob bosses in Gotham one by one. This is worrisome for the Joker, who fears he may be on the assassin's hit list, so he sets a trap for the Phantasm. Batman is concerned about the murders, especially since the police at first think it's Batman gone crazy, or crazier, and is killing the mafioso, but he's distracted by his ex-fiancé's return to Gotham City. Andrea Beaumont had dated Bruce while Bruce was training in secret to be Batman, and his love for her had him actually give up his quest to rid Gotham of crime, but one morning she was gone, leaving only a note, and the rest was Gotham history. Well, it doesn't take a genius to realize Andrea is the Phantasm. Her father had mob ties and fled Gotham to avoid paying debts he couldn't afford, and when the mobsters gunned him down, Andrea donned a mask and went out for revenge. Andrea discovers Bruce Wayne's nighttime alter ego, and the two are at odds over her methods that leads to a showdown with the Joker at a carnival. The Joker is the last of Andrea's targets, so she tries to sacrifice herself to kill the crooked clown, and Batman leaves thinking both have died in an explosion. But in truth, neither have died. Joker would return to the series, and Andrea is seen on a boat leaving Gotham City as credits roll. So the one thing that this movie is doing, if you want to see it as an extension of what's happened before in the Burton universe, is we finally are getting that backstory you hinted that you wanted, Jacob, that we're finally making, completing the arc as to why he turned to bat costuming to make his impression on crooks. And more importantly, we get a Batman that doesn't kill. I like this version of Batman more than the Burton one already. I said with Burton, I can't look at those as Batman films. They are vigilante films that happen to be about a guy who dresses as a bat and fights the same kind of criminals that you would read in a Batman comic. The character is not the same. But yeah, here we're starting to get that connection. Why did he choose the bat? Why not a wolf or a kangaroo? Is it just because they came out of the ground that one time? Because I like the explanation we're going to get in Batman Forever a lot more than he happened to be hugging his fiance and bats came out of the ground. Well, and here's what I like. You know, we talked about how Burton was influenced by Frank Miller's Batman. After Miller did The Dark Knight Returns, he did Batman Year One, which was 
kind of the retelling of Batman's origin. And in that, we get this Batman who goes out and he's just in like dark clothes. Like we see Bruce Wayne here. He doesn't have the outfit. And it's about why does he choose to be a bat? Oh, because he has to inspire fear. So yeah, he saw bats one time and a chick was scared. But I like that they started getting those elements in here. You know, he realizes that just dressing up as some guy with a ski mask on doesn't strike fear. And he has to do more than just beat people up. He needs to strike fear in them. And it talks at length about Batman's origins. And I did like those scenes. It did now evoke memories of Batman Begins, which wasn't out when I'd seen this the first couple of times. But I enjoyed those scenes of the backstory, seeing young Bruce Wayne. I love Alfred in this. He's unflappable. He's sarcastic. And seeing him dealing with the younger Bruce Wayne who's trying to become Batman and not exactly supporting, but not exactly discouraging either. These are some great scenes in what I think is way too long of a first act with way too many flashbacks that have more to do with Bruce's love life than Batman and left me high and dry. That's the first thing I really want to call out is why is it flashbacks? This movie goes back and forth in a timeline in a way that I actually found confusing. When we see him be vigilante Bruce without the bat, I didn't realize that that was taking place at another time. There weren't enough cues to let me know where and when we were on the time frame, and I just thought it would have been much cleaner if we did have Batman Year One. Why did they have to resort to the 10 years later, now 10 years back, 10 years later, 10 years back? I feel like the story they wanted to tell was in year one. Hey, if it hadn't been for this, Tarantino never would have gotten the inspiration for Pulp Fiction. How so? <laughs> the jumping timeline. Oh, God, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, this movie is insane with flashbacks. And I agree. I wanted Batman year one. When they started getting into that stuff, I got excited because I really liked most of the flashback stuff more than the current day stuff. No, definitely. I definitely feel like the strongest things in this movie are watching him have to choose his identity. It really becomes a question of, can I be normal and live a married life with the woman I love? Or will I be this solitary figure who has to inspire fear by dressing up as a bat? And I like the way that they create this conflict every time that that's presented to him. And it's only a few times sprinkled throughout the narrative. I feel like the movie is at its strong. I don't know how many times we're going to accuse, and I'm sure we've already done it a lot and we'll do it a lot more with these superhero movies, but we're always going to be bringing up Superman 2. They give up the role, they give up the powers, and then they get him back. If you're going to do that story, like doing a year one, that's the time to do it when they're getting into that superhero role. Seeing Batman have this struggle when he's first starting, this is the appropriate time to tell that story. Stuart, you said you weren't quite sure where he was along that Batman timeline in these flashbacks. He talks a lot about this vow that he made to his parents. We see him addressing his parents at their tombstone. And I really wish they would have shown that scene in the first appearance of Batman. It's this very strange scene after Bruce Wayne as a child sees his parents murdered. He's at his bedside praying and he swears vengeance to their spirits that he will stop crying. And you keep hearing these allusions to this vow he made. I wish we would have got that scene. 
and show what an effect that had on him that as an eight-year-old boy, now here he is, I don't know, in his 20s maybe, it's still having that effect and it's still this real struggle that he feels he can't break away and love this woman because he promised something to his parents. Hearing you say that, Jacob, really clears up a lot for me because I was awfully confused about this vow and I got it. Don't get me wrong, I got it. But it's referenced in such an oblique way that I almost wonder if it was either cut because they just didn't have time to make the scene because it would have involved other things or if they cut it because this is a cartoon that is on, it was on right after school. I think it had the 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Monday through Friday slot and that would have been too hard for kids. A lot of people die in this though. We see corpses so I'm, I'm wondering maybe back to the production time thing i really think it is a production issue you mentioned that there's two directors there's actually many more that were just farmed out to give it sequences it's like okay you do this part and you do this part and you do this part i mean they were in a time crunch so i don't feel like there was a strong directorial hand keeping this project together and i do feel like individually moments of this work but the coherence of them the movement back and forth between time the only time that you really benefit from that i think is when you return to the place of their first date the world's fair that's kind of where andrea and bruce fall in love it's sort of symbolic of a hopeful future you know i think he sees the batmobile as listed as the automobile of the future and they're thinking about their future together i think all of that's nice to come back to at the end when it's fallen into chaos and ruin i think that that is a payoff but i just don't know that it's worth it to have all of this stuff in the present day that's just not nearly as interesting. What's funny for me is I was far more interested in present day than past because the past was way too much of the romance and not enough of the Batman. When the Batman showed up in his ski mask in those early scenes, I was enthralled. But my God, Unfortunately, because of the way it's told, and because I have an intellect above that of an eight-year-old, despite what some of our listeners say, (laughs) it's pretty damn obvious, hey, there's a new killer in town. Hey, there's your girlfriend in town. Hey, we're spending hours talking about the damn girlfriend. Who could it be? It's the old man Smithers thing. No, Raggy, it's a You know, Batman used to hang out with Scooby-Doo. I don't know if you remember that, but for a season, they'd have guest stars like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Phyllis Diller. I'm telling you, all this present-day stuff, all it was missing was like Shaggy and Scooby digging through the fridge for a snack. I mean, it really felt like, yeah, I know who Phantasm is. This is painful. And why do that? Why set it up? to be so obvious when we could watch her grow into be what she's going to become as we watch Bruce grow into what he's going to become. Are we not supposed to know? Am I just supposed to turn that part of my brain off and go, who could the phantasm be? More than turn that part of your brain off, you're supposed to have not developed that part of your brain yet, is my belief. And again, you're going back to cartoons are for kids. This wasn't made for me. I'm feeling frustrated because you think that I am eight years old. They give us other suspects. It's not like she's the only option. There is a politician who is anti-Batman and he wants to criminalize him. His name's Arthur Reeves and of course he's also seeking the affection of Andrea. 
It could have been him. For a half second, I considered that. There's also some of these mob guys. Salvatore Velestra becomes the old crime kingpin that's at the center of all these people dying. And, well, maybe he's bumping off his old staff, although he's withered in on an oxygen tank. I guess he could play a Grim Reaper. I mean, there are possibilities. And, of course, she has a father who's disappeared, and maybe he's come back. The Phantasm does have a male voice, Stacy Keach. And he does do the voice of her father as well in the scenes that he's in. So it could be. But this all leads into my question of what exactly is the Phantasm? We all know what Batman is and we get why Bruce chooses to be him. But why does Andrea become Phantasm and what can she do? This is an original character to the animated series. Andrea made a couple of appearances in a couple of comics afterwards. But no, they made her up for this. and. I don't know why. There's such a rich arch villain gallery for Batman to fight. I don't know why you go with this one. What they said is that they didn't want to pick from the rogues gallery that was on TV. They wanted something new from there. So I guess they'd already gone through all the mainstays and they didn't want to go to Egghead or the Sphinx. So Phantasm. And I'm okay with that. I'm not familiar enough beyond what villains were featured in the 60s TV show to know if this is original or not. But I do feel like her story arc is awfully familiar, having just watched Batman Returns. This is kind of Catwoman 2.0. I mean, she's an older love interest. She existed before Selina Kyle, and she's not as sexy when she puts on the Grim Reaper outfit. But I kind of already saw this, and I'm not sure... Is she actually a ghost? There are times when people like drive through her and she turns into a mirage and she leaves ectoplasm and is she supernatural? How is she doing any of this? They never call it out. Like Batman picks up this residue that is left behind and I don't think that clue ever leads to anything. It just ties the phantasm to the two different murders because the same goo is there. Yeah, I was confused. They never really explain Did she have a run-in with a ghost that gave her powers? Does she have some kind of nanotechnology? I don't know. I took it as, and I'm just reading a lot into it, but having seen Burton's Batman, Batman could disappear in a cloud of smoke and we saw him toss the vial. I thought she was using that same kind of technology. But it just doesn't fit because Bruce has been training his entire life as this movie calls out to be this vigilante, to be this agile ninja, they call him a ninja in this, fighter. She just started when her father died, and she's able to leap over cars and disappear in a flash and do all these things. It's not so much the fighting, because they do have a scene early on. It's the scene where I knew it was her. Bruce is training on his lawn in a karate gi, and she is able to flip him. And it's like, well, okay, so she's got moves she's not talking about. She's just not as proud and boastful of her skills. I don't have a problem with her having the moves that he did. She disappears to Europe, so maybe she'd train just as hard as he did. But she puts on what looks like a heavy cloak, a Grim Reaper scythe, and I don't know what all, and then can, like, yeah, literally walk through walls. And it seems like her powers are supernatural. And we don't see her splashed with acid. We don't see her murdered. We know the father is murdered. But we don't see that she has come back from the dead. There is no supernatural explanation given. But I can only take it to mean that she has one foot in an astral plane. Well, and they make a big deal about her being a killer. That's the main conflict between her and Batman. And I like that because I like a Batman that doesn't murder. But here's the thing. How does she kill the two bosses? She gets one to swerve, drive over the, out the parking lot, off a big building. 
She gets the other one to fall into a grave and a tombstone to fall on him. Like she's not very good at killing people, if that's her plan. <laughs> I would prefer the direct approach, I would think. If my mother is dead because of these crime bosses, that's what we will learn. All these henchmen that she's targeting, it's not just because they're bad guys. They are the men that chased her and her father out of her country and cost her her courtship with Bruce. So I would think that you'd want to watch a little bit of blood. I'd think that if you were driven to that level of dementia... That, yeah, she wouldn't want it to be happenstance. Oh, a tombstone fell over. Oh, he drove off a cliff. I'd want to be the one to put the bullet in them if I were inspired to do the whole get up and be this vigilante. Okay, but putting myself in the shoes of the person writing this, you want Phantasm to be an anti-hero, not a villain. And while we have discussed the Punisher and those other types of anti-heroes in the comics from the 70s and 80s who would be killers and we'd still cheer them on, it doesn't go for this audience. It's bad enough that they're causing death in a Final Destination-y kind of way (laughs) instead of actually slicing open the jugular with an axe, which is a little bit much for the crowd that I think this has to be aimed at. Of course. And I don't mean to imply that I needed highly graphic revenge plots, but I think that you'd want to be the cause for their death. Once she's gone through the rogues gallery, once she's killed everyone, is she done? Is she going to keep killing bad people? It doesn't strike me that way. It seems to me like she has a very short kill list, and she's working her way through it, and once she's done, I don't know what she wants. I think she would be done. I think this is a revenge film, and it's I spit on my grave, the kitty version. Once she gets her revenge, she's done. She's not homicidal. She's vengeful. Right. She's not the villain. The real villain shows up halfway into the movie. Yeah, this kind of surprised me. The Joker? Voiced by Mark Hamill in his, I dare now say, most famous role. Maybe second to Luke Skywalker, but man, he's done Joker for 20 years. He only recently retired. He was the Joker for this series and every series and video game after. I'll put it out there. This is an iconic role. I mean, when you talk about great Jokers, Mark Hamill's take in this animated series is one of them. Are you really going to diss Trickster from the the Flash series this way? (laughs) Did you not see his fantastic performance as the Trickster? See it. I bought the VHS as a Star Wars collectible. (laughs) But I got to give him so much credit because knowing Star Wars like I do, I would close my eyes a few times during Joker scenes. I cannot picture this voice coming out of that man's mouth. I've never been able to pick up Hamill. From listening to the Joker, I've done the same thing, Arnie. Really concentrate, try to hear the Lukeisms in his voice, and I don't get it. It's a totally different voice. It's like the ultimate joke. Maybe it's not really him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it is kind of like the animation style, a split between old and new. I hear a little bit of Nicholson in him, but I also hear Caesar Romero in here, too. And maybe a little bit more Caesar than Nicholson. I do feel like... It's favoring what had been done in the past, but in the serious way that Burton undertook. They're not trying to camp it up. He's still deadly here. I mean, this Joker is a little scary. When he does catch up with, it's Velestra that calls him out. He's offering him protection money to save him from the Phantasm because he knows the Phantasm is going to get him, and Joker beats him to it. I mean, by the time Phantasm shows up, it's kind of a nifty little scene, pulls back the newspaper. The guy's already been gassed with Smilex or something. He's already a corpse with a grin. I love Joker in this. 
I do. Once we get past the first half hour of this movie, really, when we are done with all the flashbacks, we get into modern day, we get Joker as this malevolent spirit, and I've never read the Batman comics, except for the one Jacob and I are going to read for Books and Nachos. I haven't read it yet. I've read one comic with Joker in it, and it was a Robin comic, but I love this maniacal malevolence. I get Joker here. A long-time nemesis. This one comes across both dangerous and fun. I just love him. And I love how when the corpse turns around, he's got like this jack-in-the-box explosive on his lap. Yes, Stuart, you say Cesar Romero. I say Hamill is channeling Gorshin here. You watch Gorshin as the Riddler. He goes from this goofy, I'm making up stupid riddles to this like maniacal anger, like just psycho. And that's what you get with this Joker. He is throwing out punchline after punchline, and then he just snaps and goes crazy the next second. And that's what I like about this take is that, like you said, Arnie, he seems dangerous. He seems scary. You Now you get why he's considered probably the greatest villain, the best well-known villain in comic book history. I do have a question for you, though, Jacob, because it raises one. We see that Joker used to hang out with Andrea's dad and the gang, right? He's in that photo, but he looks normal. Was this Joker dropped into a vat of acid? Why did his skin turn white and he become all crazy? Is there an explanation in the comics? I never knew. There is. Now, when we do our books and nachos about the killing joke, and when we get to Nolan's Dark Knight, we could probably get into this a little bit more, but there is a story about this gangster that fell into some chemicals and became the Joker. How canon that is? Well... Come and listen to our book and nachos about the killing joke, and we'll talk more about that. But there is precedence for him being a gangster and becoming the Joker later on in life. You know, I don't need to see his backstory here. It had just happened with Nicholson two films ago, and I already just accept that this is your villain, a crazy clown. Clowns, they're scary. I buy all of it. <laughs> I do think Mark Hamill is giving the best performance here. I do feel like he is really, like you said... Hitting all the notes, getting that right balance between being fun, playful, almost kid-like, but at the same time, still carrying a menace, still feeling like he could do something. Yes, I do feel like this may be, of the three we've seen so far, the best Joker, if not my favorite Batman. You know, you compliment him as the best voice actor, and I would agree. I have to say the worst is that Artie Reeves... Because he's delivering his lines so cardboard that I actually had to go look him up. And it turns out it's Ellis from Die Hard. Maybe we'll get to this next year, but Han, Booby, the smarmy guy. <laughs> yeah, the, the ultimate yuppie. Oh, right. Huh. Okay. Well, it's hard to know. Voice actors, they're meant to disappear in their characters. I'm not supposed to be thinking about China Beach and Dana Delaney when I hear Andrea <laughs> talking here. Stuart, but, just to clarify for our younger listeners, with old animation, those voices were supposed to melt away and become the characters before you got all celebrities for your animated voices. This is a very different time in animation where it's more about the craft than getting a big name to promote your film. Technically, I got to disagree because you got Dana Delaney and Hart Bachner. These are not voice actors. Mark Hamill did become a successful voice actor in his own right and one of the best voice actors, artists out there. But come on, you, you're bringing in these people. It's because they're known quantities for 
face acting. They're not exactly James Arnold Taylor. That was bringing in the eight-year-old kids, Delaney. (laughs) Well, Abe Vigoda. (laughs) It might have gotten their mom, maybe. I don't know. But I feel like all of the voice actors are fine here. I feel like it's Hamill that does one step better. I'm going to also give props to Kevin Conroy of this entire retrospective series. He's my favorite Batman. Oh, Conroy, this series is so iconic. Conroy up there with the real Batman, the the physical actors. Probably more famous than Kilmer, which isn't saying much these days. I don't know who he is. I just think that his depiction of Batman, his voice is so perfect, and I love the Batman he's given to play. I love that he's a nice cross between what I understand from talking to Jacob the comics to be like. He's detecting, and he's dark, but he's not broody, angsty, and goth. Is he on steroids? (laughs) This this guy is unnaturally, like, Superman buff. Like, ridiculously large. Funny enough, there is a Batman story where he gets hooked on super steroids that another character that will be visiting a couple of times in this retrospective, Bane, is also hooked on. But no, the normal Batman, he does not abuse the steroids. He's just a little bit bigger than I would think an unassuming playboy would be. It looks like he spends all his time at the gym. And I do feel like they're borrowing from Superman in some way. He looks to me like an animated Superman. I like the slightness of build that Keaton had. Adam West might have needed to do a couple crunches, but, you know, I feel like it's a cartoon. He translates as a hero. It's an okay Batman, but I would dare say he's not my favorite. Everyone is barrel-chested in this animation, though. I mean, look at the Joker. That guy's got a chest on him. Yeah. And this is the start of what I understand from my dipping my toe in of a DC animated universe that is almost as labyrinthine as the DC comic universe because this is in continuity and in the same kind of art style with the Superman cartoon that would follow shortly after Batman Beyond Justice League they've woven these all into this massive universe of crossovers and characters and all of it in a way that's both admirable and daunting so All of the characters have this style. Superman is even bigger, even as Clark Kent. And yeah, you wouldn't exactly think of him as, well, Christopher Reeve. Right. It's fine. It it was alarming to me at first. It was a striking difference than anything we had seen before. But I'm loving the action of this Batman. The standout scene of the entire movie for me is when he's being chased by the cops through the streets. And it just is a... Great action scene that continues to escalate. Batman has to give up his mask and cowl as a diversion to escape. You really believe that Batman's in danger of being caught or discovered. I love it. I do like a lot of the action. I wish the execution was better. You know, we've already talked about the animation style and how rushed this movie was. I wanted to like these action scenes a lot more than I did. And I think it just comes down to they didn't take the time or didn't have the time to really do it as well as it could have been. I mean, this looks TV to me, and if I'm seeing this in a theater, I want it to step up a bit. I want it just a little bit more dynamic. These are good animatics, but I want movie-style animation here. Hmm. I'm glad that you're saying this, Jacob, because I was having the exact same feeling, and I was afraid I would be the only one. I hear that you're loving it, Arnie. I wish that I could. I know that that scene is impressive, in relationship to everything else that we see in the movie. It is the most dynamic of the movie. 
but why am I not getting excited? Why am I not loving it? Is this my bias of animation coming in, or did they just not do a good enough job? Would I be into this moment if it were live action? It was a question I repeatedly asked myself, and I don't know the answer, but I do feel like, yeah, I wish that I could be on board with the scene. It's obviously a big dramatic scene. He could be exposed in front of the whole city. His whole rep is riding on it. And I'm kind of meh. I actually was going with it, but again, it's because at this point, we're well more than halfway through the movie. We're 45 minutes into the movie, and I've become accustomed to the comic art style. The bad animation really was hard for me to get past for the first 15, 20 minutes. The whole thing wasn't aided by the fact that these are the talky dating scenes that there's just five too many of. (laughs) So by the time we got to this, though, I'd become accustomed to the animation style. It was invisible to me, and... I was in on Batman's plight here. It's nowhere near as exciting as if this were a live-action film and seeing people do these stunts and the visceral experience of seeing quote-unquote real things do it versus a cartoon. A cartoon is always going to have a layer of abstraction for me where it doesn't feel as real, but because of his danger and because he gets wounded, I was shocked that the movie went here. I mean, I've seen this twice before, but it's been 15 years since the last time I saw it, so I remembered none of this. And again, this is borrowing a lot from year one, which is a really gritty tale of Batman, which I liked. I liked that they were getting into these darker comics, not necessarily the Tim Burton way, where it's a bunch of goths wanting to cut themselves with razor blades and brood in the dark, but that they were telling these comics where they were complex. You know, for a kid's story, having this whole dialogue versus should a hero kill or not? Do I uphold this vow to my parents or do I give it up for love? Like these aren't really kiddie themes. So I appreciate that they're trying to do something more adult, even if the basic plot, you know, I already know who the villain is. I already know who's going to show up when they pull off the mask. I just wish they would have gone more with that. You know, back to the whodunit for a second. I got this confused with another Batman movie when I started, and I knew I'd seen it. And when Phantasm came to town, I really thought it was a superhero gone bad. It turned out I was getting confused with a different Batman animated film. But wouldn't that have been so much cooler (laughs) if it wasn't just the love interest? If there had been multiple people and it turned out to be the very last person you suspect, not the only person you suspect? Can we just go through the list of who knew what? I just want to see if I get this or not. Joker killed Andrea's father. She knows that Joker is that same guy. Yes, I think everybody knows that. That's what I got. Because the mobsters are going to him. You see him in the picture. Same face. The only person who doesn't seem to know is Bruce Wayne Batman, who has to actually draw a crazy face and go, it's Joker. That was stupid. This is the world's greatest detective. He doesn't just go around drawing eyeglasses and mustaches on photographs (laughs) to figure out who the criminals are. I hated that moment. (laughs) That was dumb. (laughs) All right. So she knows who her target is going to be. He thinks Phantasm is Batman until he gets some close-up video of her in the suit. And at what point does he realize it's her? Because he goes to her apartment with a bomb, but it takes a while for him to make that out. And in the middle of all this, the only other possible suspect, the politician Arthur, he doesn't know who anybody is, right? Does he know the Joker is his old friend? He doesn't know she's the Phantasm. He doesn't obviously know that Bruce is Batman, although... Andrea does. She 
has inferred this because she saw Batman standing by the Wayne grave. I don't know. If you're saying that there were too many relationship scenes, I wanted more of this relationship stuff. I wanted to know where I was in the footing of who knew what. Understand, when I say relationship scenes, I'm specifically referring to the rom-com aspects of Bruce and Andrea, that relationship, not all the relationships between all the characters. Okay. I could have used a couple more moments to really get a fix on this. And I do feel like if these were flesh and blood actors, I may not have need different scenes. I would have been able to get it by looking at their face, by seeing how they play the scene. Because they're animated and crudely so, I'm missing the character stuff that I liked about the Burton movies. I'll blame the writing as much as the animation, though, because the fact is none are a credible suspect. I figured something was up with Artie, and it does turn out that he's a little bit dirty. And I don't know how he doesn't know who anybody is. But yeah, nobody else is putting together Andrea came to town and Phantasm showed up except us. And it's just because of how the story is told. I mean, it still could be Carl. It still could be her dad. They have the idea that they wait until the very last flashback to tell us. And I got to say, I had to watch it three times before I got what happened. She's in Europe. Comes home with some groceries. A man is standing there and she said, but we already paid you. And he leaves. She drops the groceries and that's the end of it. And out of all of that, we're to understand that that was Joker. He just killed Carl and she knows it even before she's gotten through the door. Yep. I, not crazy about this scene. It's again, cutting it for kitty stuff. I once had the pleasure of interviewing Don Glute, who wrote for a lot of animated shows. He wrote He-Man. He created the He-Man universe. He wrote for Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And he would tell me about the back and forth they had to do when dealing with kitty stuff. And when he was dealing with the death of Uncle Ben in Spider-Man, what it was was you couldn't say dead. So, <laughs> this was Don Glue's story, and I'll never forget it. He comes in, and Peter's talking to Aunt May, and he goes, Uncle Ben, is he? And Aunt May goes, yes, he is. And Glute says, we don't know what he is. He could have been constipated. He could have gone to sleep. <laughs> but it's he's dead, and that's the way you get around it. Yeah, but they're in the movie theater. I guess that would be my argument, is that take a few more risks and go for something a little more adult. You are going to try and... Woo, a older audience here. This wasn't going to be made on the backs of children alone, I don't think. Or maybe that is what they were going with. But as a kid who sat through Watership Down and Fritz the Cat and Heavy Metal, I've seen my animation have blood and boobs and be a little bit grittier. And I think that children could handle it. I agree. And does anyone know what this was rated by the MPAA? Because I'm really wondering that now. Yeah, we get some blood. The final battle at the World's Fair, Batman gets cut by some little planes that Joker sends out at him. Joker loses a tooth. There is some violence, but I don't know. It's not very intense. Okay, it is PG. I honestly wondered if it might be G. I mean, remember, Star Trek The Motion Picture was G, and it had some intensity. And when we start this up, and the Warner Brothers logo's there, it's not na 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 it's na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na na-na-na-na-na-na With Bugs Bunny eating a carrot, I was on guard right at that moment. You had to know what we were in for, and what's funny is I forgot all about Bugs Bunny until this conversation, but when we start talking about what you can and can't show, Bugs Bunny shows everything right there. You know what you're in for if Bugs Bunny's eating a carrot leaning on the Warner Brothers sign before your cartoon. Yeah, I agree. It wasn't a good omen. And this isn't 19... 
forties Bugs Bunny where he's going to be running around in drag. <laughs> he did that in the eighties. He's modern. <laughs> but that have made it better. I don't know. Doesn't Joker wear a dress or is that a different cartoon? <laughs> That's the Dark Knight. He wears a dress. I know he did somewhere in this cartoon. He has a weird robot girlfriend. Yes, he's got a sex bot that he treats <laughs> as his wife. I really do like all this stuff at the World Fair. It's really satisfying to see how he's moved in and turned it into his evil lair. It works as a compliment to Bruce's Batcave. We get to the final fight at the World's Fair. It's the three-way fight. Phantasm shows up and just unmasks herself right there. I think we're supposed to all be shocked. But I love Joker's lines here, though. He's like, costume's a little bit theatrical, but who am I to talk? Yeah, I mean, the Joker, uh, this should have been a movie where the Joker was the main villain. He steals the show. He gets the best lines. But he is the main villain here at the end. He's the threat, especially to Batman and to Andrea. I mean, they never even call her the Phantasm, which is why I keep calling her Andrea, too. Yeah, this is the last one on the hit list. She got the three other guys that chased her away to Europe, but this is the actual man that presumably put a bullet or whatever he did while she was out getting groceries to her father. So this is the most important one. If she kills nobody else, she must kill Joker. Maybe he killed the father the way she's modeling her kills after him and Joker had him slip on a banana peel and crack his head. (laughs) Maybe. That's the way Bugs Bunny would have done it. (laughs) But now we've reached a battle that they can't actually do what they need to do. Unlike Burton, they're not going to kill this Joker. He's going to continue on in the TV series. And I doubted that they were really going to kill her either. And of course, Bruce is going to get away. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense. So really, you just have some explosions and then everyone goes their separate ways. I really thought that she would die. And I was actually going to be really angry because the explosion comes and we get that brief moment where she and Joker are dead. And I'm like, well, I know Joker lived because I've seen the TV series after this. So Joker's alive and you cannot tell me Joker lived, but she died. So I was glad that they say right here in the movie, nah, she didn't die either. Why she didn't die, I guess she decided at the very last second to give up vengeance and save them both, but I really thought it was going to end with the death of them both, which would have been an event monumental enough to happen in the movies. It would be Transformers all over again. It's the death of the Joker. We can't put that on TV. When the series comes back, no more Joker. But no, it pulls every punch, and the story ends at the place where it began, and Stuart You always say you want stories where things change. I don't necessarily need characters to change, but I need something of relevance to happen. I guess Andrea stopped being a killer, which she wasn't before the movie started. But Her last moment is her on a ship with somebody hitting on her. I'm like, (laughs) how is this even relevant? She did give up. She realizes she was wrong after the World's Fair exploded. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Yeah, at the last moment, her conscience kicked in. Was there a scene? Did my DVD skip? I just see this explosion. And then we're supposed to think Joker and Andrea are dead. We see her, but we never see the Joker again. I don't understand how he got away when she was already holding him. She had a freaking axe as a hand. More to the point, now she is perfectly free and clear to go back to the life that was taken from her that caused her to go on a vigilante mission anyway. She doesn't tell Bruce that she's still alive. She leaves the locket in the Batcave. She tells him that way. Oh, is that what that's supposed to mean? I thought he maybe already had it. No, she leaves it in the Batcave. She is telling him, I am still alive, but I need to go find myself and sow my wild oats on the love boat, I guess. Okay. Because I was wondering, if she came back, would he give up Batman? The choice had been throughout the whole movie, 
I'm going to be Batman, or I'm going to be Mr. Andrea, what's her face? And the thing that I'm holding on to even now is, would he actually do that? At the end of the day, the only lesson he seems to learn is that I may be crazy, but that bitch is nuts. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I think that that is something that, again, perhaps due to rush timelines or perhaps just due to television cartoon level of writing, this should have been explored more in parallel. The drama of who gives up what for whom should have been better fleshed out. It's there, but it's only there because I'm looking for it. It should have been there as obvious as Phantasm's identity. Well, Jacob, Stuart, do you recommend Batman Mask of the Phantasm? Was all the audience cheering for us to do this worth it to you? Jacob? I want to make something very clear. I know that Batman the Animated Series was a great series overall. I know it's iconic, especially with Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill as the Joker. Great characters came from the animated series. Paul Dini, who was a longtime writer for the series, moved on to the comics, created Harley Quinn, Joker's lover, who's become a hugely popular character in the comics. One of those few characters that was able to go from the TV show into the comics and be hugely successful. This is a series I enjoyed watching when I was in high school, when it was first out. I liked the style. I liked the take on Batman. When I get to Mask of the Phantasm, there are a lot of elements I like. I like how they tackled Frank Miller's year one stuff with the origin. I like the most of the flashback stuff, actually, in this film. My biggest problem, though, is that the animation style did not step up to be a movie. If I watch this, if I'm Stuart... And this is my first taste of Batman the Animated Series. This does not convince me to go add all those DVDs to my Netflix queue and watch all a hundred and whatever episodes. So that's a not recommend for me either. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just guessing. Take it it away, Jacob. (laughs) I think I said Jacob, not Stuart. (laughs) What I'm saying is I don't think this movie has the power to convert the unconverted. You watch the series, some amazing episodes. You get why that series was so popular, why people still talk about it today. You do not get that from this movie. This movie, it's a mediocre couple of episodes from the TV show. I don't know why it was on the big screen, except they wanted to get something Batman onto the big screen because it was popular at the time. The story just isn't there for me. It just doesn't hold my attention. Even though it has all these little elements I liked, It's not a very good story. And all the parts that I did like, the Joker and Kevin Conroy, I could see all those in any other episode. So I didn't hate this. I probably watched this before Batman Returns, but I'm going to give it a week, not recommend. Stuart, do you need to speak? (laughs) You've done a very good job, Jacob, but I do want to emphasize that I don't think that this is a bad movie. I think I have a problem with it because they've chosen to tell a story that's so dramatic, that's so hinged on the character story. They've gone back and created an origin story and really created a means by which I'm going to connect with why Batman came into being. It's real frustrating that the limitations of this particular movie through substandard animation 
I don't know. If this were live action, I could see going with it. If they had done it well, if Burton had shot this as the third Batman movie, maybe. We'll see. It would have had more of his humor. It would have had more of what I connected with in those last two movies. But here it does just feel like a TV episode that got extended by an extra half hour. I feel like if this were 50 minutes, I could endorse it. But at a feature length, it's just not enough. So, yeah, week not recommend. And me, I've been right on the fence with this one because the animation style and the slow pacing of the first 30 to 40 minutes really put me off. And I sat there watching, and I'm agreeing with you also, Jacob. I haven't watched all of the series, but I've seen episodes here and there, and I remember them being good. And even as recently as last year, if you go to our Facebook page and scroll way the heck down, you'll see that I went through a phase when they started putting them all on Netflix of watching all of these DC direct-to-DVD movies, the Batman ones, the Superman, Shazam ones. I was going through them all, and I gave quite a few recommends in there. I know that these can be good, but this one, I just... I wasn't able to click with it that much. There are things that I like here. And so it is right there on the line for me. But in the end, I think it's just too dated. I think it just doesn't hold up. I recommend this to anyone who's in grammar school or elementary school or whatever kids call it nowadays. If you're before middle school, I recommend it. But I can't give it a recommend for me. I don't want to watch it again. I want to go and see where this led. I want to go watch Batman Beyond. I want to go watch Batman Under the Red Hood. I want to watch some of that other stuff I can give recommends to. This just didn't quite pull it off. But it's got a lot of good things in it. And a little bit of pacing changes, I could have gone the other way. I could almost recommend it for Mark Hamill's performance alone. Yeah, you know, it didn't quite do it in theaters either. They didn't even break even. This came out at Christmas. I don't know if it was poorly marketed or just other things to see. But they didn't do this again. They didn't create more of these spin-offs from the animated series into theatrical films. As popular as Batman was... He would only become live action from this point forward. And all of his other friends, I know they're putting out these kinds of movies all the time, but they're DVD only, right? There's no talk of ever putting out an animated Batman movie, as far as I know, in theaters. I agree. They're constantly putting them out on DVD to mixed results. Some are great, some are trash. Hard to tell which. But no, I've not heard of any talk of theatrical releases again. I think they kind of learned their lesson. They rushed this one for theaters. And, yeah, they didn't make their money back, and it this does not deserve to be a theatrical release. It just, it doesn't. No, you would be very disappointed to expect more from what I presume the show gives. It feels like something I would expect a show to give me. In 1992. Yes. But I will say, this did something for me. Jacob, what do you say we extend our books and nachos run and do Batman Year 1 and Year 2? Because I understand Year 2 has a villain, the Reaper, on whom... This phantasm is loosely based. Yeah, I've read about that. I've never read Year Two. I've heard mixed results, but Year One, again, not just a Frank Miller classic, but a comic book classic. So I would love to revisit that and talk about it with you. Well, we will do that over at booksandnachos.com. So listeners, maybe you're a little disappointed with the three red arrows, but if you love this Batman movie so much that you are going to post and post 
and email <laughs> and post that you want it. Maybe you'll find more recommends when we hit the comic book source material over at Books and Nachos. And I guarantee you'll find more satisfaction if you donate. <laughs> I know I will. I know that there's some recommends in the donation series, and I know that I agree with Stuart. They're possibly some of our best reviews ever. Some great conversations about the Alien films and about the Spielberg films. Don't know about Prometheus yet. High hopes, high hopes. $10 or more gets you all four Aliens plus Prometheus. Stuart just couldn't be bribed to go back to Aliens vs. Predator, and I did try. I tried as hard as you guys got us to do Mask of the Phantasm. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of those movies. And $25 or more, and you get the three Spielberg reviews. So thank you for listening, and we will be back on Tuesday with our next live action Batman film. Same bat day, same bat website. We've received a letter from Batman this morning. Please inform the citizens of Gotham that Gotham City has earned the rest from crime. But if the forces of evil should rise again, Cast a shadow on the heart of the city. Call. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing Batman movie retrospective series. Well, that was very brief. Just like all the men in my life. Part of our DC Comics movie series. Fortune smiles, another day of wine and roses. In your case, beer and pizza. (laughs) Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week as we review another Batman movie, culminating in a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. My business, repeat customers. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, check out our archives where you can find reviews of other comic-based movies, such as Green Lantern, The Avengers, X-Men, Howard the Duck, and many more. If you gotta go, go with a smile. <laughs> You can also listen to our non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many others. Now that's impressive! You can set your bat phone to subscribe and get every new Now Playing Podcast. RSS subscription details are at nowplayingpodcast.com. What is it you really came here for? While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Come on, you gruesome son of a bitch. Come to me. (laughs) The link to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Oh, you made it. I'm so thrilled. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. So what are we waiting for? Let's consummate our fiendish union. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can't get capes and cowls, yet you can buy panties, t-shirts, coffee mugs, calendars, mouse pads, and much more. Alfred, let's go shopping. Yes, sir.
Now Playing's Batman Retrospective Series is edited by Brock, Alex, Nick, and Arnie. They scream and they cry. Which is your day now? Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. I hate when people talk during the movie. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures or DC Comics. Batman and all that DC's infinite Earths contain are the property and trademark of DC Comics, and no infringement is intended. The law doesn't apply to people like him or us. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. This is why Superman works alone. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. Gotta go! So many people to kill, so little time. This is actually my third animated movie for Now Playing. If you count that Keanu one. A scanner darkly? Are you counting that one, Stuart? I, I, I remember scan- Transformers. I remember you shrieking during that. Oh, wait. Then it's my fourth. I forgot about Transformers. I totally refreshed that one. <laughs> <laughs> How hilarious. That was only a year ago. But yeah, if you rack it up, Scanner Darkly counts. It's motion captured animation. Transformers, the animated movie, and Clone Wars. It was sort of my uh, maiden voyage into now playing recording. Oh, I forgot about Clone Wars because it wasn't a retrospective. No. Still carrying a menace, still feeling like he could do something. And because he's animated, you don't see Jack Nicholson's bulge either. You know that physically <laughs> he's probably... What, what bulge are we talking about? In the punch. stomach? <laughs> no, yeah. Yes. I mean... <laughs> I, I haven't seen that bulge yet either, and <laughs> I, I, I hope not to. But 